one. Yes. Hi, everybody. I'm Wendy Murdoch, and this is Webinars with Wendy. I've been doing a series of webinars now for over uh, almost a year and a half. And um, it's because of you that I keep doing them because you are so positive about the information and the accessibility. And so we will be doing less in July because I'll be traveling um, and it's hot. Um, and then we'll be uh, picking it up a bit the second half of July and then moving into August. So stay tuned. We'll keep sending out emails every Sunday to let you know what's coming up for the following week. And just remember this week we have free shipping on the Murdoch Method shop. So if there's any products you ever thought about getting, now's the time to do it because there's free shipping. All right, today my guest is Pam Eckelberger and Diane Dezingle from Equisoma, and they are here to talk to us more about ECVM. So welcome, Diane and Pam. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us Great again. Great being here again. Yep, we're happy in our bone room. <laughs> yeah. It's so different now with things starting to, to move back to normal. You've been having people come into the bone room, which... If they want to do that, what do they do? Contact you and make an appointment? Yes, we need to have an appointment so, so they at least know we're here. <laughs> okay. Um, so they can contact myself um, or Diane either by Facebook message or text or email and just say they want to come and when and we set up a time and, and awesome. they have their options. They can also go to the website to the info and scroll down and there's shows what we have in the way of the short format and the long format. We do charge a minimal fee, I yeah. think. Um, Reasonable. <laughs> well, pretty much they get, um, you know, two hours at minimum um, of a lot of bone talk. So because we can um, talk for a long time. Talk for a long time. Do you ever to... get like schools bringing kids in to learn about anatomy? Not so much schools. Um, we have groups like um, saddle fitter and yeah. body work teachers brought his students in on a couple of occasions. That would be really important. That's awesome that you're getting those folks. So I mean, we'd love to have students at veterinary that are learning veterinary medicine kind of look at the bones yeah. um, and see some of the pathologies that we have. But so far we haven't. Well, your bones just tell such a story. And I think that that's the most amazing thing. It's not just that there's bones, but the stories that they have to show people so that we understand what's going on with horses. I think that is so important. So um, if anybody wants to visit the bone room, just get in touch with these ladies. I believe you'll, you go away in the summertime. So um, it's, bit, really, yeah. late, it's really late. important that they contact you first and don't just show up at your door. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what are we gonna talk about today? Well, our, our whole topic will be on the ECBM, the equine com, uh, complex vertebral malformation that has now been getting more and more um, out there in the world. And we originally wanted to review the latest horses that we've uh, recovered because um, we have a couple very interesting stories with them, but it ended up being just too much. So we'll have to do that on the next one. Okay. <laughs> I always love having you guys. So um, anytime you want to come back, I'm happy. Oh, yeah, because yeah, they, they are interesting stories. Um, but again, this, this whole topic of ECBM is really taking off with not only the studies, genetic studies, and new information. So what, what I wanted to do was sort of go over the whole story, because a lot of people still don't know what it is. Great. And, love it. Um, so I'm gonna sort of, we're going to sort of start at the at the early years and, and breeze through and, and review some of the history and then talk about the bones. 
Okay. Yep. All right. I'm going to go to my, see if I remember how to do this. Oh, wait, I've made your co-host. Hang on. I, oh. I've got technical problem at my hand. It's okay. okay. Now you're good. Okay. So share screen. I love your shirt, Diane. Thank you. <laughs> Always looking for things on the internet that are horse, horse and bones. <laughs> Come on. It's amazing what you can find. Yes. Okay. So do you see it? Um, it hasn't opened yet. It's, um, I'm still seeing your desktop and you know what, you might have to unshare and reshare because it doesn't follow. Share and do it again. I remember that and now I have to do it again. The one thing I about Zoom. That's the thing is it's not, a, oh wait, no, nope. uh, who are you? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's <right>. Safari. <laughs> Shouldn't be. It's finding that right thumbnail. I found it before. All right, share screen. <laughs> and I click on it here. Yep. And when that opens, you'll probably have to unshare and reshare to the keynote. <laughs> but it's not coming up again. That's the thing. Um, it's not so coming back. Go, if you go down to keynote, in your, um, and click on that, does the keynote presentation come up? Not on the finder, it comes up on my screen. Right, so then when you go to share screen, you gotta look for that, um, the first slide in your keynote. Yes, there you go. Are we there? Oh, yeah. All right, whoops, what'd I do? I don't know. Uh, did you add a screen, a share, a slide? <laughs> I don't know what I, this is ridiculous. <sighs> and I have no help whatsoever. You, you, you were good. Really, and I? then it kind of looked like you added a slide. No. Nope. Okay. All right. Let me go. Wait, let me go back. I'm clicking on my keynote and it's not doing any. Oh, all right. oh. did she see that? Okay. Now we just have to share the screen. Play, play. Okay, and then you go to Zoom, the Zoom window and you go to share screen. See, now I can't get to the Zoom window, that's the problem. Oh, can you reduce your um, keynote presentation so that it's not full screen? Probably. There's a, a up in the, on my keyboard in the upper left-hand corner, there's a, a shrink screen button. Yes. Do you see me now? Yes. <laughs> All right. There's just a bar. There we go. Ah, that's a lot of clicking. It's okay. You made it. Okay. All right. Can I get rid of rid of my window up in the right side? You can. If you or go, um, there should be a way to shrink it. Um, yeah, I see it. I just didn't click it. Go somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There we go. Okay. Are we? Oh shoot. I just think oh, there, there you go. Yeah. Okay, guys, here we are. <laughs> I 
<laughs> for those that, all of you who don't know where we are, what we do, we are the Equine Osteology and Anatomy Learning Center based in Aiken, South Carolina, physically based. We have a cute little uh, brick and border room here. No bricks, but a lot of borders and it's filled with bones. Uh, what we do is uh, study bones, obviously. We get horses that are donated to us and uh, for various reasons, um, not just out of, out of the whim, but there's, usually, there's always problems um, and we compost them. This is Diane actually uncovering my horse, Irish, who's a horse we'll talk about next time. We're open for uh, people to come in and use this as a resource for uh, students, for vets. We have lots of books. You can see down here, lots of books and references. Um, we research, 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 and then we give presentations and share what we are learning as best we can. So today I wanted to cover uh, TBM. The CBM stands for equine complex, not, not cervical, not congenital, complex, <laughs> which is very confusing, vertebral malformation. Back in 2014, Australian research anatomist, Dr. Dr. Sharon May Davis, she's a PhD, published one of three peer-reviewed papers in the Journal of Equine Veterinary Science in which she described a congenital, which it means it's inherited, malformation in the sixth and seventh cervical vertebra, that's in the neck, that she was discovered, that she was discovering during dissections of a number of thoroughbreds and thoroughbred derivative horses. And this is the first publication that she wrote about it. Next year, she uh, wrote a paper about the uh, morphology of the muscles that are attached to that area and how they are um, affected. And in 2017, she wrote the third paper on the malformation of the first sternal rib. So from Sharon's continued research, um, along with that of others from various countries, including Italy, Netherlands, UK, and over here, the list of breeds affected is gone from thoroughbreds, thoroughbreds derivatives to this list below. So ECDM is not breed specific. Uh, these are just ones that have been reported as having it. Um, there's still a lot of breeds out there who probably have it. Yeah. I find it fascinating that Icelandics are on that list. Yeah. We just, well, actually, um, we just had one be part of the pilot genetic study over here, it's an Icelandic from uh, Canada. And yet there's um, a group of, in Germany who are also, um, they're veterinarians and they are X-raying for it. And uh, one of those vets told me in an email that they have seen several Icelandics. Um, yeah, because they're not related to thoroughbreds in any way, yeah. are they? No. Yeah, no, this is the interesting thing. Uh, Frisians, Frisians is kind of a closed stud book. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so in essence, uh, the thoroughbreds have the highest percentage in their population based on dissections and research that are showing up with the malformation. Warm bloods come next. In fact, the warm bloods in Europe are starting to rise as far as numbers of ECVM. Uh, quarter horses are up there pretty well. They have a lot of thoroughbred in them as well. Yeah. So um, I actually also have a Mustang who is part of the pilot study, um, but we're not sure of his heritage. So I sent in uh, samples to have his heritage checked out to see how much of a Mustang he is. <laughs> what does <laughs> being a Mustang mean? Yeah, okay. So, so for everyone who's interested in these publications to read, 
you can go to my website at the bottom and there are a navigation button at the top for references. And I have a list of references um, that apply to a lot of things on the website. But if you scroll down, there's the section on ECVM and there's a lot more references than this that you can download the PDFs. Um, so that's how you can do the reading for yourself. Okay. And Sharon's first, those first three papers, she referred to this malformation as the C6, C7 congenital malformation. And that's pretty much the way people have been talking about it and still do. Um, but in 2019, realizing that the congenital malformation involves not only C6 and C7 with its associated musculature nerves and blood vessels, but in many cases, the first and second ribs are involved. So she realized that it's more than just C6 and C7. So Sharon submitted a proposal to the Journal of Equine Veterinary Science to change the name to Equine Complex Vertebral Malformation. And there is kind of a reason for this complex vertebral malformation because this was already established in the Holstein cattle industry as they were finding very similar malformations and they established complex vertebral malformation as the syndrome name and she added equine to it. But EC, stop laughing, ECVM is not to be confused with CVM in horses, which vets refer to as um, cervical vertebral malformation. It's kind of a general term or CVSM. And this is, the, herein lies kind of the problem I'll talk to you about later with the genetic study and getting the x-rays is, is the communication problem between what the owners are asking you vet to do and what the vets hear that they need to do. So ECVM, equine complex vertebral malformation, CVSM is cervical vertebral stenotic myelopathy. Uh, the ages, I'll get there. <laughs> yeah, no, now I realize what the difference is, right? Yeah, yep. the ages uh, that typically presented for ECVM is congenital, they are born with this. Um, but the symptoms typically don't really manifest until about between five and 13 years old. And that depends on individual, individual to what the horse has been asked to do. Right, the workload and, and yada yada. And how the malformation uh, presents, presents itself. Right. Uh, whereas in the cervical vertebral stenotic myelopathy, um, there's actually two forms according to this publication I've cited down below. There's a static and a, a dynamic form and they manifest it anywhere between this, this range of eight months to eight, four years. So in other words, younger horses can be found with this. So the gross lesions, and we'll get to all of this on ECVM in a bit, but the ECVM is a morphological abnormality of the ventral surface of C6. The bones are malformed. Um, may also involve C7 and the first and second ribs. And the malformation sets up asymmetry of the associated musculature, neurology, and blood supply. And Diane will go into extensive length on <laughs> how that's all affected. <laughs> Whereas the CVSM is, is a stenosis, which is a narrowing of the cervical spinal canal with the resultant compression of the spinal cord. It's generally found between C5, C6, C6, C7, C7, T1. And it may, may be a result of cervical malformation. Uh, ECVM prints presents in very, it, it is variable with symptoms. They mimic other forms, sim, 
in fact, they mimic wobblers, but we're gonna we have a whole uh, list of symptoms we'll go over in a little bit. And whereas CDSM is referred to as wobblers and it's an uncoordinated gait uh, in the form of symmetric ataxia. Diagnostics for both of these, radiography, CT and post-mortem dissection or digging up the bones for ECBM. Uh, for CF CDSM, radiography and CT, but the vets prefer to include myelography with that because they need to look at the spinal column to see if there's compression and that's the best way to do it. Okay, so. A few highlights of ECDM. It's considered to be congenital malformation, meaning that horses are born with it. It's believed to be caused by a mutated gene or genes responsible for normal development of the lower cervical region. In other words, it occurs during embryology before you know, the horse is even constructed. <laughs> ECDM is believed to be hereditary and passed to the affected foal by both sire and dam. So the risk of being born with ECDM rises with increased inbreeding practices. And based on Sharon's current research, now studying primitive and prehistoric horse specimens, she's finding ECDM only in domesticated horses. So is this mm. a man-made problem? Mm. So here we are with the symptoms. And Diane, you okay, can Okay, can I just, uh, just to clarify, so when, because when it, when you came up with Icelandics, my first thought is, are we looking at inbreeding? With cows, do we know whether or not it's inbreeding? Yes, yes. There's there's uh, the Holstein problem came up in the early or like 1999 or something, and and uh, what they found was that calves were were aborted. Um, or died soon after. If they were born, they were malformed in the cervical region. They had other soft tissue malformation, contractures in their front legs and varieties. There's several publications about this that I have if people are interested. So they got on it. They, they found the gene that was responsible. Oh, wow. And then they found the bull and, uh, and went through all of the descendants of the bull. And in about 30 years, they pretty much eradicated in Denmark. So, yes. <laughs> okay. So, so, well, that's just very, really interesting, especially since now it's named similarly that, that we can look at what they did and know what we need to do. Absolutely. And that's kind of the basis of where the genetic study started to um, grow from is having this, this example that we could at least focus on for the start for the pilot study. Right. So, um, and I'll get to that again later. Okay. So symptoms. Horses with ECVM present with very similar symptoms as other more common ailments, which makes it tricky to diagnose and we really have to be careful with it. Um, we don't want it to be the diagnosis du jour because there's, there's a whole lot of uh, different, different ailments that have the same kind of presentations. But with ongoing research, the list of recurring symptoms that relate to ECVM is growing. And we are, um, there's ongoing research primarily with the veterinarian, Dr. Christine Gee in Australia, who is trying to correlate what she's seeing on, on the x-rays to the horse's clinical signs. So obviously, uh, disclaimer, consult your veterinarian if your horse is experiencing any of these issues. We are not veterinarians, so we do not diagnose. So symptoms, unexplained lameness that cannot be located by veterinary diagnostics. 
pain upon palpation of the lower neck and resistance to lateral flexion of the neck in either or both directions. And when we refer to resistance, we're not really referring to stiffness. We're referring to hell no. Yeah, you yeah. really get the feeling they can't do it. They can't do it. They don't want to do it. And they're going to tell you they're not, they don't want to do it. Girthy uh, bites shoulder or chest or uh, actually Sharon May Davis told us this yesterday, a lot of horses uh, nip at the top of their front legs. And we'll kind of go over why that might be when we take a look at um, the skeleton. Yeah. Um, they become anxious when tacked up, stumbled a lot. This is one of the key features. Resistance turning in one direction, usually to the right, either in hand on the lunge or when ridden and against, again, the resistance is, can become violent. Suddenly starts refusing to jump, does not want to take contact or move forward. We see this a lot, um, becomes anxious or explosive when asked to do so. Difficult for the farrier, objects, uh, objects to picking, holding up any of the feet, pulls the feet out of the various grasp and becomes anxious or explosive. We have a very good example of this with a horse that we recovered uh, in February, um, who will show to you hopefully in the next, the next webinar, uh, a thoroughbred mare and uh, beautiful on the outside, absolutely beautiful, but we, she had all kinds of behavioral issues uh, and ended up, we x-rayed and she had the, um, the malformation. Um, anyways, the, the owner described to us how she had a wonderful farrier who was very careful with the mare and he would be working on a foot and the owner would be watching the mare very closely. And as soon as she started seeing uh, tweaking of the muscles or twitching of the muscles in the mare's back, she would tell the farrier to stop what he was doing as soon as he finished the step he's on and drop the foot. Because if he didn't, the mare would explode. Wow. Yeah. So um, these are the kinds of things. She's a very, very um, observant owner. Well, and this mare had had numerous years of diagnostics and care with a veterinarian we're familiar with who actually was here at the bone room. And when we started talking about ECDM and showing her the bones, it just clicked for the vet. She's like, cause she'd not really, she'd maybe heard of it, but never really considered it. But she's like, oh my God, all of these symptoms, this has gotta be this mare. And that's how we ended up getting a mare because <laughs> they'd gone as far as they could was trying to figure out what was wrong with her and make her comfortable. And really nothing was gonna make her comfortable, unfortunately. Yeah. Right. So uh, neurological signs, instability, ataxia, poor coordination, especially proprioception. Proprioception, for those of you who may not be familiar, is the proprioceptive nerves um, tell our brain where our body is in space or where our appendages are on, in space. And an, another interesting uh, sidelight on this was, again, talking to Sharon May Davis yesterday, and she was describing one particular horse they were looking at who was alive and they were, the vet was doing the neurological and she, she said, noticed the front feet would hover before, yeah. before it would step down onto the ground, like the, the right front would step out and then just hover before it would come down. And that's part of the proprioceptive issues or the, the horse just can't tell where their feet are sometimes. Uh, ECVM may share symptoms of wobblers as I pointed out before or string halt However, horses diagnosed with wobblers or string halt may not necessarily have ECVM. So there's a little bit of a twist there. Hoof issues, horses with ECVM often have one clubby foot, the high-low kind of syndrome. Mm -hmm. 
posture is a big one that or that um, Sharon has pointed out in her papers. The horse will stand with one front leg slightly ahead of the other, and this is like all the time, or stands base wide in the front. And the base wide seems to get worse as they age. I mean, all the symptoms seem to get, get worse, worse as they age, age but yeah. definitely the standing base wide. Uh, the big one for, for us, with the horses that have come to us, uh, is the behavior. And ECVM horses become worse with age, as, as Diane just said. So your once sweet horse can become the opposite overnight. Um, behavior is unpredictable, fine one day, not the next, and for no apparent reason, especially spooking out of the blue, we have no idea where it comes from. ECVM horses can become aggressive and dangerous to themselves and those around them, not all, but many can. Um, some can live out in pasture and some have to be euthanized because of the aggressiveness and danger aspect. And may I just say, you know, cause some people ask me about using Surefoot with what appears to be neurologic horses. And what I tell everybody is do not use the pads unless your vet has looked at your horse and given you a diagnosis, because this is the kind of thing where you could make the situation worse because you don't know what you're dealing with. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so I just want to put that out there because recently there was a post and somebody said they had a neurologic horse and somebody else, not on my page. <laughs> right. Yeah. You have to always worry. I think about destabilizing something that the horse is doing what they can to stabilize, even if they don't know where the parts of their body are at. Right. Right. Yeah, they, they manage to compensate in a way that they can hold themselves together and you have to be careful not to unwind that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, so, uh, so let's talk about what it actually is in respect to the bones and the morphology. And first thing you need to know is the um, normal cervical morphology. So horses, all mammals, except sloths and mantis, have seven cervical or neck vertebra. And our little diagram over here, we obviously have our skull. The very first uh, cervical C1 is the atlas and the axis is the second. Then we have three, four, five, six and seven, and seven connects to the first thoracic vertebra. The first thoracic vertebra carries the first pair of ribs. And this is right at the base of the neck. This is your junction, cervical thoracic junction, lies behind the scapula. Diane will show you um, our articulated PD horse bones that will show you how this looks too in bones. As far as the morphology, uh, atlas and axis, and C6 and 7 have their own unique anatomical features, whereas C3, 4, and 5 are pretty uh, similar. And I'll show you that in the bones. Um, and let's see. Oh, yes. The transverse processes, which are the uh, uh, bones that are coming out from the sides of C6, are different from the others. And they're comprised of three branches. And we'll, I'll show you those because these, this is where the malformation can take place. But the significance of these, these tubercles, we call them on the ventral surface of C6, is their attachment points for deep postural muscles, uh, most notably longus cola, whose function is to stabilize, fixate, flex, and rotate the neck. And again, Diane will go into uh, detail on that. In the normal C6 that doesn't have ECDM, both of the ventral tubercles are of equal length. And now we'll show you what they look like. So I'm gonna stop share. There we go. Okay, so put it on us now. I'm gonna switch over to my camera. Yep, and I'm gonna spotlight you just to make this clearer.
You got it? Yeah. Okay, so. Full screen. Oh, <laughs> <I> know. Okay. <laughs> um, oh, I totally forgot to bring over Apollo's whole to show the three, four, and five morphology. Where's that? Okay. It's with all those other bones. <laughs> well, that's easy to set up. Yeah. I'll just lie in my lap for the moment and then we'll uh, move on. So, what I want to show you is uh, one of our horses, all of the seven uh, cervical vertebra are on a bungee. Actually, five are on the bungee. I got to grab the other two. Okay. Oh, look at that. How big was this horse? 16 one. This was, this was Apollo. Right. Yep. Who we thought had the malformation. He didn't. <laughs> he had other things happen. He had other things happen. Oh, gosh, we're opposite. Am I right? No, you're not right. Yes, you are. <laughs> we do know what we're doing, people. Most of the time. Yeah. I think it. So what I have here, and everything's opposite, is <laughs> your seven vertebra, and you're looking at the bottom of them, and that's where the malformation takes place. Okay. So here is the, the atlas axis. You can see that they are different shaped than the others. And then we have C3, 4, and 5. They have their ventral surfaces. You guys need to be used to the um, terminology. Excuse me, I'm going under the table. Can you get your pointer? Get my pointer. Okay, so ventral surface is the underneath surface of the neck, obviously. So three, four, and five are, uh, I call them like bat wings. These are the transverse processes on either side. And then six has these two ridges or tubercles. And I'll show you close up. So just six in a minute. Okay, and you can see that that's different from five, four, and three. And then C7 goes back to being kind of bat wing shape. Like so. so that's just an overview of the whole neck. Thank you. Now I'll bring out just C6 and seven. Hopefully my, it might take my camera a couple seconds to focus, okay. This is again the ventral surface, right? The ventral surface. So we have, I need a little stand to put them on. <laughs> now you're looking at lateral, right? So the head is in this direction and the tail's over here. So this is the cranial end, head end, and the caudal end tail end of C6 and C7. I'm gonna look at the ventral surface. Okay. Trying to see <laughs> I know it's, it's crazy because you're back, back, back here. So C6, here's those tubercles that I was talking about. They're ridges that run down the left and right sides from the cranial end to the caudal end. And the, the morphology of C6, the terminology is such that the whole transverse process is divided into three branches, the cranial branch, the actual transverse branch, and the caudal branch. 
the caudal branches are key for the malformation. This is this part in the bones can go missing when it's being developed. Right? C7 on a normal. So C7 is back to kind of bat wing shape. It has two little tubercles right on the center line here that are uh, attachments for muscles as well. So what happens in the malformation is, I'm just gonna show you C6. You wanna sit and you can hold one up for me. My hand's gonna hold up the malformed one. You see the difference my hands? <laughs> Yeah, hold on the spinal canal. There we go. There we go. So do you see the difference? It's very confusing. It's very hard to do this, people. Yeah. Right here and here. So this one is missing the ventral tubercle, which is normally on the normal horses here. Can you see that? All right. Yep. And the okay. lateral tubercles. The transverse tubercles, they're still there on that particular malformation. And so are the and they, and they remain there during the malformation. Yeah, so the malformation uh, primarily involves involves this part. That caudal ventral tubercle. Yeah, right there. And on this particular yes. one, it's just the one side. Just yes. the one side. This is called a unilateral absence. So the, the tubercle is missing on one side. Right? And then in this particular horse, you want this one too? No, no, we took all the labels off. Uh -oh. <laughs> I know it's terrible. Okay, this is the same thing. So this is a situation where the tubercle is missing. The other side. <laughs> oh, that is so confusing. It is hard, okay. isn't it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so, it's in here and C7 is normal, normal. right? <laughs> now in other horses, the tubercle okay, will transpose. So where you see the missing tubercle here, it grew on seven. And yeah, so the significance of that is that the muscles that attach to that tubercle are now on a different vertebrae. Uh, yes and no. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> and, and, and this can be, uh, Sharon May Davis on her second paper describes what she's found in several horses as to the muscular uh, morphology. And it does, it, it does change. It's asymmetrical. Um, in some horses, it's uh, that particular muscle and Diane will go into detail on it is atrophied or hypertrophied, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, but the main point while we're looking at the bones right now is I have them lined up. So the spinal column is pretty. Ready? Oh, nice hole, yes. <laughs> now look at the twist on the ventral surface. Oh. So, so the... Um, the center area that comes down here is the ventral crest and it's supposed to go straight and it's going off to the side. Mm -hmm. So this twist is set up in this particular variation of the malformation. 
So that horse had a twist in his bones the way he, I mean, was he born with the twist or, or was the muscle being attached at a place it wasn't supposed to be attached, create the twist? You know, there's so many forces that are happening and including on the articular processes, the actual joints right. uh, in the spine. But I have, we have in our, um, in our collection, a three-year-old thoroughbred filly who has the growth plates and the growth physis that are not attached. She has this malformation and at the ventral crest of the physis, the growth physis, it is being pulled off to one side. So yeah. yeah. Um, since they're born with this, it can then affect the growth, direction of growth um, of, the, of the physis. So moving on, this is a unilateral transposition, unilateral of C6. Sometimes we will find both of the tuber ventricles are missing. So both sides, this is a C6 of an Appaloosa. So both sides here and here are missing. And his C7 did not transpose. I can't even explain this one. <laughs> it's pretty bizarre because it didn't transpose, but he has these little structures bony structures on both sides that look like they might've been uh, tubercles that might've formed. We were still figuring this guy out. Um, variation. Oh. Very, okay. That bone is constantly remodeling and that the muscles are exerting the forces on the bones, thus pulling on them and possibly twisting them when they're not attached in the right place. Is that, can that explain why you see this progression of symptoms? Yes, very possible. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And you know why you don't see it so much in the the yearlings or two year olds? Of course, they're not really asked to do that much either. Um, yes, absolutely. I think that is one of the big questions: is seeing it progress as they get older. You know what what is happening in there as they age from gravity or the forces that are placed on them. And we have histories a lot of a lot of these horses, but. Um, all the histories are different, so you can't make a, a good comparison. Okay, so our next variation on this theme, <laughs> this is a Frisian big guy. And this is his C6. And just like the one I showed you just a second ago, his C6 is missing both of the caudal ventral tubercles. And his C6 looks almost identical to C5. Yeah. Now, both of those tubercles were then transposed to seven. Not, not totally on one side, but both of them are there. Right. This is considered a bilateral transposition of the caudal ventral tubercles. Now, in this case, you don't see much of a twist because it's more bilateral. You still have the problem of where those muscles normally should have attached. Another feature that can go along with this morphology is normally on C6, normal. <laughs> Where's normal? Normal doesn't exist. Normal doesn't exist here on this table. Normal go. Maybe Apollo? <laughs> yes. All right, we have too many bones here. All right, so see these holes? <laughs> these framing? Right. On, on either side of the spinal canal. This is, these are arterial foramina. Foramen, foramen means a hole or a passageway. 
uh, where, which I will serve quick. Vertebralis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where arteries pass through. And this is normal. C6 has them on both sides and C7 does not. So in this case, they go around the outside and not through any openings. But in malformed horses that have a transposition, this is the C7. And you can see one side. Oh, wow. Has, but the other doesn't. And it's the side that has the transposed tubercle. Okay. So there's an asymmetry set up there. In the Frisian, both he had bilateral transposition. So he also has both arterial foramen formed on the C7. So that's another feature. And then finally, this is the one that wows everybody. As I mentioned earlier, uh, the malformation just does not involve just the C6, C7. It can involve the first and second ribs, sternal ribs. Um, Sharon May Davis wrote her third, her third paper on it. There's wonderful examples in there. The normal ribs, again, Diane will show you on PD where they are, but this is what they look like. So they're, they're um, short, they're symmetrical. The top portion attaches to the vertebra to C7 and T1. And then the bottom portion, ventral portion attaches to the manubrium of the sternum. So the malformation in some of these horses that have an C6 can manifest like we found in the Frisian. This is his right rib and this is his left rib. So, <laughs> Wow. This isn't broken. This was uh, found, I found that we found this in the compost and there's a publication in, uh, published in 1901 on a dissection and it shows a diagram of this. It's very nicely done, but what was here was- Hang on a second, somebody's knocking on my door, but you keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, everybody, <laughs> there's a fibrous attachment that actually runs from here down to and often attaches to the second rib uh, or the sternum somewhere. Um, and Diane is gonna then now uh, continue on and talk about the attachments in these areas and how they're affected. That's the thing about being by yourself during webinars. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to repeat everything now? <laughs> no, it's okay. You've already seen this one. I have, which it shocks me every time. I know it's it's pretty cool. All right, so we're gonna I'm gonna switch. Um, we'll go we'll go we'll stop. I'll switch the camera. That's what I'm gonna do. And Diane's gonna talk a bit about all of these attachments. Whoops, sorry, wrong one. Okay, <laughs> you'll be back. I'm not worried. <laughs> okay, okay, Wendy. There's Wendy. Yep. Do you see that? You see us okay? Yep. Okay. All right. Diane, are you going to move? You're going to talk I'm, first here. Oh, okay. Well, I think I'm just going to um, come over go here repeating. and point. Yeah. You want to flip the lights on and point them up there? I'm going to put it back on the camera and go over to where Diane is. Okay. So uh, you might get a little seasick. I have to take it off the uh, tripod. On the back, there's a switch. You guys have any questions while they're moving around? Just type them in the chat or the Q and A. There you go. Good. Ask questions. Yep. 
Wow, that's blinding. Too much? It's okay. All right, one second, guys. I'm going to cut you off. You'll be right back. Okay. It's called poor camera construction. <laughs> All right. You're still there. We still hear you. Oh, awesome. It's so much fun to see around your bone. Right. You see Petey? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll take it to a wide angle. There's the button. Lights are out the back. There's Edge in the back. And Apollo's skull. He has a high detached inside. This is pretty much our room. It looks like you're outgrowing it. Wait, <laughs> you should see the front of the room. There's like six tables out front that are covered with bones underneath the awning. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we should take you on a tour of the whole space. This is my little photo booth. Oh, I love your photo booth, by the way. It, it does a good job. Okay, so we're going to try it. Okay. Back to Diane. Well, so let's, let's focus on Petey. Yes. This is our model of Petey. This is uh, Pam's old horse. Um, I was playing with clay yesterday to try and represent some of these deep soft tissue structures uh, that can be affected by ECDM to try and give everybody a little bit broader perspective and a better visual um, on what can be affected outside of just an alchemation of the bones. Um, but to start with, I just wanted to do a little bit of background on the basic range of motion of that, um, that it extends, it laterally bends, and it rotates. It can do all of these motions basically simultaneously. The greatest amount of motion happens uh, at the occipital joint um, at C1 in the back of the head and at C6 and C7, which is of course important that we're talking about the malformation of C6 and C7. Um, the normal cervical motions aid the horse in locomotion. The neck oscillates in every gait and every reduction in range of motion of the neck is going to impede locomotion as well as gait efficiency. It's also going to have an effect on balance. You know, the neck and the head are these big things that are sticking out in front of the horse. They weigh a lot and they have a lot to do with the horse's balance. So if you have restricted motion because of pain uh, or because of a lack of proprioception, it's going to have a big effect. Uh, the other thing, the normal motion of the neck aids is the adjustment of the load on the front limbs. Just by shifting the neck from side to side, you can add or take away weight on the front limbs. And that's maybe something that we don't think about that much, but it, it's obvious. Uh, cervical pain can present uh, as some of the symptoms we already described, uh, resistance to turning and abnormal gait, maybe not an overt leanness, but that the horse has a reduced uh, range in protraction or retraction. Um, that the lane, it, that there can be a lameness and that it can't be isolated to the distal limb. So we can block, say, from the knee down to the foot and the horse still has this lameness. That can be because of neck pain. Um, and you can also have a loss of power. The horse just really doesn't want to move forward because, again, um, if you have a restricted range of motion in your neck, it will restrict 
the horse's uh, ability to locomote. And, you know, we're not even going to get into all of the connections of the neck muscles with the head and the front limb because that's a whole <laughs> other webinar with Wendy. Uh, and so also cervical pain can manifest as ataxia, and that was one of the things that was mentioned um, as symptoms of ECBM. So um, <clears throat> the first muscle we're going to look at is the longus coli, and that is represented with this pretty purple clay that fell off overnight. It's since been reattached. Um, the longus coli muscle goes from C7 all the way to uh, T5 or 6, so back in here on the ventral surface of the neck and those portions of the thoracic vertebra. It's a bundled muscle, which means that there's multiple muscle bellies from C1 to C5. Where are we at? C5. Uh, from C5 back, it becomes a single muscle belly and it's reinforced by a tendon. And the tendon, so, Let's back up just a little bit. I'm going to get a little ahead of myself. Uh, the longest coline muscle is important for segmental stability. Uh, it, because it has these pieces that cross one vertebral joint, and then there's other bundles that can cross multiple vertebral joints, it's meant to help stabilize, but also to help with those fine motor movements between joints. It's considered a postural muscle, but it's also considered a muscle that helps to support that cervicothoracic thoracic junction. And that's where that reinforcement tendon plays a part because this convex structure here needs some support. And uh, we also won't go into the missing lamina and yeah, the ligament <laughs> because that's uh, another thing that Jeremy Davis has done a bunch of research on and found that in ancient breeds, the nuchal ligament used to come all the way here to C7 and now it barely comes to C5. So these big uh, laminar pieces of ligament no longer exist. So the idea of the longest pull line muscle being part of the support system of the cervicothoracic junction, it, it makes it all the much more important. Y'all with us? Yep. And so the um, the nuclear <laughs> stopping at C5, is that in all horses now or just some horses now? Well, domestic horses. Domestic horses. I mean, so she did go and dissect some ancient breeds like the Kozbalski's horse and Koenig's horse and zebras, donkeys, uh, and they still have it to C7. Wow. That's so, like so important. It's, it's pretty huge, it's, especially when you consider in many disciplines that we want the horse to engage the basket and be able to raise this portion of the base of their neck and their withers. And that's how a horse can then engage his hind end because he's lifting his front end first. And so right. now we're missing some of the pieces that help them to engage their thoracic sling. A key part of back to the longest pull-eye muscle, this muscle in purple, that the portion that goes from C6 back to T5 or 6 that has that reinforcing ligament, it's attached to the caudal tubercle, that very piece that we're talking about being missing in ECDM. 
So if it's missing in its absence, um, where does it attach? Good question. It must attach somewhere else. Yeah, so this implicates asymmetry of the long, longest pulling muscle and possible postural and locomotor dysfunction. The longest pulling muscle is also what they call a cybernetic muscle, which means it has type one fibers. And, and again, it's for fine motor movement. But the other thing is that it is rich in proprioceptors. And Pam touched on the proprioceptors before, which is that their neural input that uh, tells us where we are at in time and space. So when we think about these forces that have coordination issues, they might be stumbling a bit, they might be dragging a toe. Um, Sharon talked about a horse yesterday, a jumper that always had just weird front limb placement over rails and was hanging, it sounds like a limb all of the time. It, it's just dangerous, you know, mm -hmm. when they don't have a good idea. Sometimes they can be restricted in movement and they can't maybe get their, their legs up. But if it's a lack of proprioception and not realizing that their leg is not up as far, then that's a whole other thing. Because if they can't feel it up in the air, they probably can't feel it when they're landing on it either. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, if the longest pole is attached in a different place, it can affect balance, it can affect coordination, it can affect posture. It can also affect, and I think we, we showed this with the bones, that horses that have a unilateral uh, ECVM situation, that there tends to be more twist in the base of the neck, and that can possibly affect your joints here, because these are meant to meet together in a very specific way. So if these two vertebra are twisted at the base, it is going to affect these AP joints. There's actually a publication that came out in 2016 following Sharon's work, and it's by DeGruen. De uh, it's in my reference, uh, and it does correlate the malformation with uh, spinal stenosis and uh, arthritic changes in those joints in some horses. So that's a good one to look at. Well, and that's an interesting thing to talk about that when we have gone to the vets with um, clients and they're maybe looking, we're wanting them to look at C6 and they do tend to focus on the AP joints and oftentimes there will in fact be arthritis oh, there. Yeah. So we, we know that there's a correlation that most of the time they're focusing on arthritis and wanting to inject the neck. Um, which is one thing, but you're not going to change it if it has the malformation. The malformation will kind of not be able to be fixed. Uh, another thing that Sharon said in one of her papers that she saw in dissection is that on the side of the missing caudal ventral tubercle, uh, that the longest coli will be hypertrophied. So where the ventral cubicle is missing, the longest coli will have get gotten bigger. And these particular types of muscles, the cybernetic muscles that are postural muscles, aren't really meant to grow that way. They're not like locomotor muscles that we can use a lot and we can make them bigger and stronger. They're these little postural muscles. They're not supposed to get bigger. So um, that indicates a lot of strain that's creating a lot of compensation just by them growing. 
Anything else you can think of, Pam? On oh, the scales? Oh, yeah, no, I got the scalings next on the one display. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember where this sort of fit in with Sharon's papers, but she does talk quite a bit about seeing that the trachea, which mm -hmm. also comes down here along the bottom, uh, the ventral surface of the cervical vertebra, that there's been quite a few places where it has been compressed. So that's, we'll, we'll sort of get into various things that can affect breathing that can be related to ECDM. So next we're gonna talk about the scaling muscles and these are the muscles in green. The longer ones that you see here are the ventral scalenes and this smaller one is the medial scalene and there is actually a small uh, dorsal scalene on top, which uh, Sharon says will also be, these, these will be changed uh, if there's ECDM. That's one of the things I wanted to ask Sharon yesterday and she said, yep, yep, they will be. They will definitely be changed. She said they'll be dis disorganized. And that's when it's a really eventually grip. She said ECDM. Oh, well, yeah. Okay. Recognize that your, your muscles are representational, but the scalenes are not very big muscles, right? Well, they're kind of, they're, well, they're strap muscles. Um, and no, they're not very big, but they have really important attachments. And they're, so they're really meant to just bend this part of the neck. Uh, they're little tiny bending muscles and they do a certain amount of contribution towards uh, inspiring, towards taking a breath in. Okay. And so that is sort of their job. I think they almost can create bigger issues than what their job is. <laughs> I'm just grab the regions rudimentary and hold it up to show the importance of. Uh, Becky, did you get an answer to the trachea, how it's running along the underside of the neck? The, the, your sound, Pam and Diane, breaks up a little bit. I think we're at the edges of your internet connection. Um, oh, okay. No, I think it's because we're farther away from the uh, laptop. Okay. Well, it was kind of breaking up before when you were closer, but that's okay. So uh, Sharon said something happened to the trachea. So what happens to the trachea? Well, just that the trachea is running along the ventral surface of the neck. Uh, along with the esophagus and a whole bunch of other things. Um, but the trachea is the thing that Sharon found could be compressed uh, when a horse has ECDM based on some of these changed attachments of the muscle and possibly the twist in the cervical vertebra because of the asymmetry that's involved. So this is the, Just taking that rudimentary rib of the region and uh, just to, just 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 to show that where do the scalenes attach in the rib that's missing part of its well and, and even if they're able to attach that this rib unfortunately we don't have the sternum down here that these ribs are very Sharon made a big point yesterday about talking about how sturdily attached these ribs are. <laughs> this is wanted some sternum. This is a this is a sternobray. Two sternobrays. Yeah. Uh, and there would be some more cartilaginous attachments that go to here, but uh, and the sternum can be also uh, shifted to one side. Sure, and with that short rib, it's not 
going to attach to the sternum. Right. Well, it's not. And so I don't know, Wendy, as a, as a Feldenkrais practitioner, if you've dealt with people that have, that have a thoracic out, uh, inlet syndrome or thoracic outlet syndrome, however you refer to it. Uh, yeah. And I had a student once that was missing uh, two thirds of her sternum. Her ribs didn't touch. Oh, so wow. They got down low. It was fascinating. <laughs> well, well, the sternum and those first ribs are so important for keeping the thoracic inlet open where all of these structures like the trachea and the esophagus and um, nerves. nerves and other veins and arteries pass. And so that's basically what we're going to talk about in talking about the scaling muscles. Um, let's see here. So they do attach to the transverse process of C6 uh, and C5 and then to the first rib for the ventral portion and the medial portion attaches here to C7. So again, if we have a unilateral transposition and maybe C6 has got a bit of a twist in it, the potential for putting strain on this muscle, creating hypertone, uh, having it be possibly um, hypertrophying, the problem comes in is that you've got these nerves and arteries and veins that go between the ventral scalenes and the medial scalenes. And that's what they call the scalene gate. My representation maybe doesn't show how tight of a area that can be. And that these spinal nerves form in this area through the scalene gate, the brachial plexus. And the brachial plexus is all of the nerves grouped together that innervate the muscles of the shoulder and the front limb. Your representation is awesome. And the camera work and the sound right now is really good. Okay. So it sort of sits underneath the scapula this way. It's an area that is practically impossible to image like with radiograph and it's difficult to get to, but you can see that if these muscles got tight or, <laughs> or fall off all together. Uh, if they got too tight, if they became, <laughs> yep, all, all of those things that they would start to impinge on these nerves. So you could possibly have problems with shoulder muscles, with forelimb muscles. The subclavian artery comes through here, which provides all of the blood for the lower limb. So then we can sort of go back to talking about these horses. I think we didn't actually mention that one of the things, horses can have high-low syndrome, but they can also have a bit of an atrophied frog yeah. on that side. Um, uh, maybe poor hoof quality. Again, the lack of proprioception can be a neural thing, but what if they just don't have good blood supply? It can affect all sorts of things. So all of those structures are passing in between the scaling muscles and the scaling muscles have direct attachment to C6 and C7 and the first rib. So a horse with a rudimentary first rib, I think the, the, the problems could be large. I was going to say where there's nothing for the, those nerves and blood to go over, i.e. the rib that's there. So what happens to them then? Do they get trapped inside muscle and fascia? Yeah, I think that's probably changes with every single one. I mean, that that's what we're talking about. 
wanting to be able to do some of the dissections and see what's considered normal and then see some that are abnormal. Yeah. Talking with Sharon, she says every horse is different when she dissects them. You know, everything shifts around and no horse is the same. It's fascinating. Yeah, Sharon, Sharon actually said yesterday that she's seen the scalings attached to the second rib. So that means that they are probably going to be stretched longer than they're meant to be. Yeah, more. So, uh, uh, happen to ask her, it, are all of the uh, auxiliary, if you will, structures beside, you know, like take there, they're just like trying to figure out where to go or do, or do some muscles actually disappear as well? Oh, that's a good question. A good question. I don't, yeah. I don't know if she's ever uh, experienced just a muscle that wasn't there. Shall we call her? It's 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> next, time, next time you call her, you can ask her that. Because You're going to pop that down, you for will. sure. Yeah. Uh, so one other thing I'm going to go over because this has, and I asked uh, Sharon about this yesterday as well, that there's another incredibly important nerve that uh, the roots of it come out from C4, 5, C5, 6, C6, 7, and that is the phrenic nerve. And the phrenic nerve is the innervation for our diaphragm. And our diaphragm is what allows us to breathe. It's this giant muscle that separates our thoracic uh, cavity from our abdominal cavity. And it goes in between the scaling gate. So uh, think about horses that they're diagnosing with COPD or asthma or roars. Yep. Or maybe that they have some sort of what's thought to be an allergy related breathing issue. Um, maybe it's just that the phrenic nerve is not able to do its job because it's being impinged through the scaling gate. I mean, this is just sort of an extrapolation that's not that far off of what can happen if a horse has C6, C7 and has all these structures that are not able to perform the way they were meant to. And the last thing also has to do with nerves. We have another big the brachial plexus is here, and then there's a ganglion that sits underneath here uh, under the first and second vertebra behind the first and second rib. It's the caudal cervical ganglion, and there are nerves that come out of that ganglion that go, the visceral nerves that go to the heart and lung. There's vascular nerves that go to the um, carotid artery and the vertebral artery, and that is all of the vascularity that goes to your head. So that's another incredibly important part of our neurology that could potentially be affected by the asymmetry, or again, the missing pieces of bone and the muscles not knowing where to attach, that we may actually have a vascular issue to our head. And, you know, the, the nutrition that comes in the blood, the hormones, the chemical messengers, all of that stuff that's going to our brain could be compromised. So there you have it. That's, <laughs> that's how, I mean, I could link it all the way to the hind end. We talked, yeah. yeah. Pam, what were you, Pam was reading something yesterday about the attachment of the rectus abdominis to the manubrium. Yeah. So here where the first ribs are and the rectus abdominis attaches to the, the, 
to the pubic tendon. So, you know, we can connect front and hind end pretty quickly. Well, and this is such a, you know, it's such a deep area and it's actually such a fragile area. And I think people look at the horse and don't consider where the base of the neck is and think, oh, my horse is nice and strong. Right. Right. Well, I'm going to lose visual for a second. We sort of feel like the vets are largely focusing on uh, when they talk about whether or not they think that ECVM is clinical, they're really looking at it from a lameness perspective. Um, if the horse isn't overtly lame, then they don't consider it clinical. And I just wonder how many other things are being missed that aren't being correlated, possibly. Oops, yeah, because they're they're looking with a narrow focus and not a larger perspective of how important that whole base of the if any if anybody's ever had problems with the base of the neck, which I have, um, it, it is debilitating. It's serious. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, Becky is asking, what was Pam reading that discussed the rectus abdominis attaching to the maneuver? <laughs> Uh, that was something random yesterday. Oh man. Uh, uh, <laughs> gonna work on it and oh, it. <laughs> we were reading so much yesterday. We were, we were just trying to throw it all together. So if I can come up with it, I'll send you a note. <laughs> somebody asked, can this, can ECVM be seen in all breeds, including native ponies? Uh, I don't know. Um, not that I've heard yet. Uh, in the groups that are involved with all this. Um. And so the best diagnostics at this point in a living horse is radiographs. And CT. CT is wonderful if you can afford it and you have the equipment. Right. So, so that segues us into the next uh, part, two, 215, here we are, <laughs> which is the whole uh, genetic study for this. Um, do we want to come back and do that as a separate webinar since it's already uh, 2.15? <laughs> up to the listeners. <laughs> uh, you guys, I, I really need to pump the genetic study because I need samples. Pump it quick. Ah, okay. Wait, so I, I can skip through. I can skip through um, a lot of stuff and get to the gist of it. Yeah, because the genetic study is how we're going to figure out where sort of where it is, right? Yeah. So what, what I'd like to do, just given the time, is if you can do a brief discussion about what the genetic study is and what you need, and then maybe we can come back at another time and talk about what they're finding. Okay. Um, okay. So now here we go, trying to get us to share screen again. Yep. Where did you go? I don't know. <laughs> here you are. It's okay. No worries. Don't, don't worry. It just won't find it. Okay. Do you see that? Yep. Okay. My genetic studies screen. Um, I just see your, your PowerPoint desktop, your desktop with pointing at your PowerPoint. Okay. Now do you see the full? Nope. You're going to have to unshare and reshare because it will not follow you. It's one thing about Zoom that really drives me crazy. It's driving me crazy. Yeah. Um, when you change windows, it's like, I don't, didn't know that. I didn't get it. <laughs> All right. So when I bring it up to share and on the window, it doesn't show the PowerPoint, but I can go down and click on it down at my doc. 
if you have the PowerPoint open. Yeah, it is. Then it should show you in the thumbnails, unless you have so many other things open, it's showing you too many thumbnails. It doesn't show up in the thumbnails. It That's just shows, just shows the finder. That is so weird. So are you, so you're not seeing it right now? No, try, try it again, because you managed it before. We just have to recreate what you did. <laughs> okay, there's the, that's right. your desktop. There's my finder. Yep, and you're gonna open the keynote, which I, we thought that it opened. Right, and so and now you should be seeing ECVM genetic study. Nope, so now you have to, unshare and then reshare that CVM genetic study screen. And I do that by clicking the stop share. Yes. All right. And you share again, but you've got to, got to go to that one. I wonder why it's not showing up. It doesn't show up. Oh, the shutter open means it's already open. So it's somewhere on, it's somewhere. When you share screen, if can you scroll when you go to share screen and look at all the different thumbnails? Mm -hmm. That's all there is. Is oh wait, here's desktop. How's that? There we go. You got it. Oh, damn. Sorry. <laughs> okay. You know, it's good. We all learn something every day, right? <laughs> Multiple things. Yeah. All right. So I'll skim through these. We already saw this is the basis of uh, why we want to do a genetic study. Um, okay, so the diagnostics are radiography CT postmortem. Um, however, so if you take an x-ray of a normal horse with a normal C6, he will not have the physical attributes of ECVM. However, this horse may still be a carrier of the mutated genes, and this is all based on the genetics. Okay. So if that horse happens to be a stallion, and you breed it to another quote unquote normal, a mare whose x-ray is normal for ECVM, she might also be a carrier. And in that case, it means that you're not out of the clear. There will still be a chance that the resulting foal could be born with the malformation. So this is the importance of the genetic test. The only way we'll know if horse stallions, mares are carriers is through a genetic test and not just the x-rays. So. It. What I need for this genetic study is, is quality. Well, first I need horse owners <laughs> and horses. Then I need quality radiographs and I need four of them. Um, I have a protocol that I've written up that when you, if you're interested, you send me an email, I will send you back an email with um, an attachment you can then send to the veterinarian. And it gives a little bit of an intro into ECVM what it is and also the protocol for X-raying. I need two lateral, lateral views, one from left, one from right. And then I need two oblique views, one from the left and right of C6. Um, that after I distinguish, the reason I need this is because I have to send these hair samples to Edelon Diagnostics, who's doing the genetic studies. And we have to be sure that those hair samples belong to a horse who has it or doesn't have it, which is tricky. Right. All right. Um, this is a video and all of this information comes in, in my email to whoever's interested in it. This just shows Edelon showing you how to take air samples. I also uh, need the registered name or pedigree of the horse, if at all available, uh, the breed, sex, and age. I have a database going. 
where I'm recording horses uh, and their sires and dams who are affected um, as essentially it's data collecting. So real quick, this is an example of a <laughs> not good quality x-ray. It's a lateral view sort of of C6. This is C6, cranial, this is C5. So cranial's here, here's C7. And those tubercles, if you remember from the bones, are somewhere in here, but this is the area we really need to see clearly, very clearly. And that's the problem is, is the majority of x-rays that I've been getting in the pilot study have had to be retaken. And some people don't want to do that. I, I totally understand because they have to spend money. All right, so here's just to give you an idea what we're looking at. Here's a lateral of normal C6, C7, the bones, and it shows the tubercles. And this is what it can look like a normal one on x-ray. Notice that the, the tubercles are transposed pretty closely here. So we still really don't know if both sides are the same. And that's why we need one from the left and the right. And we also need an oblique view. This is an oblique view. So you see uh, the uh, APs up here, the articulating processes are not transposed one over the other. So you're looking down slightly like 30 degrees. Um, and this is the normal transverse process. This is the cranial branch of C6, and here's the caudal branch, nice filling this area up. This is the normal transverse process of seven. And in the X-ray, you can see right there in the circle, that's the area that we need to see to make sure that it's normal and we need to see it on both sides. This is just an example of a horse who's got the bilateral transposition. So C6 is here and it looks like C5. Many times I'll get x-rays from the vet saying, and they labeled C5 as C4, C5, C6, it's crazy. And that is a fantastic radiograph that they got back at a picture of C7. Yeah, this that is a high, high quality, <laughs> high quality x-ray, which the normal uh, horse owners probably will not be able to get. But as long as they can get a good picture of C6, all of C6, so I can see if those tubercles come all the way to the end. Um, this is one just, I love this one because it's the extension of the one before because this little guy right here, mm. remember that rudimentary rib of our, our Frisian? That's what it is right there. Wow. You can see it in this picture. Yeah, this is another beautiful one. And this is C7. So it looks like six because both tubercles were transposed just like our Frisian right. and then rudimentary first rib. Um, we also see variations um, which is a gray area where the tubercle is, yeah, we've actually got one, so that's the one. That is the one. <laughs> it is shortened, but not the whole caudal process is missing. This is the gray area that we're trying to get more information on relative to the horse and how it's reacting or having any issues. And in x-ray, that can be tricky again, because one looks a little shorter than the other. Is this a problem? We don't know. We need to have those other x-rays to make sure that we see the full picture so okay question yes what is the like to get these particular radiographs approximately what is it going to cost the horse owner well we're we're looking worldwide i know here in, in aiken with our vet it's 50 dollars yeah so like 200 dollars for the radiographs and if you haven't come to the farm farm charge plus if you have to sedate them we if the horse is quiet our vet doesn't sedate if the horse is antsy they do so you've got the cost of that um, and that's that. So that's Aiken, South Carolina. Uh, okay. And, uh, yeah, that was a ballpark figure. That's what I'm looking at. 
And then yeah. in terms of the quality, you said like these radiographs are really good quality. Is how would one know? Uh, is there type of equipment or is it just technical skill that created the really nice radiograph? A little of both. A little of both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah definitely a learning curve. Um, yeah, therein lies the the struggle that I've I've had running the pilot study for this genetic. Um, uh, genetic study and uh, we're fine finding, and this is not, I'm not dissing veterinarians. It's just something that they're not used to looking at um, or evaluating. And the majority of them don't really know what to look for with respect to the missing tubercles. And also the quality of the machines are not as we would like them to be. So th there's a whole gamut of variables in there that makes it quite tricky. So, I mean, the reason I ask is that I have, you know, Marion DuPont Scott Medical Center an hour and a half from me. Maybe I put my horses in the trailer and haul them up there and get some radiographs for you. <laughs> yeah. So, so ideally going to a clinic is better than them bringing a portable to your barn. Right. Uh, but I've got, like I say, I'm getting, I'm getting samples or offers from worldwide. So I've got, we got some from course owner from Portugal mm. and getting a vet there a to their farm is a challenge b having power to run the generator to run the x-ray machine it's <laughs> a little ridiculous yeah it gets kind of crazy but how we, many horses are you looking for just so that we you know we okay. know what to call out for so so the gist of the of this whole thing right now is the pilot study has been done and the reason what we were doing with the pilot study is the people at Edelon were going to assay specifically for that gene that's in the Holstein cattle. And they were going to see if, if affected hairs, you know, affected horses that I send samples for, if the DNA falls into that area. And what they found is it did not. Oh, then, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> so we said. So, so they widened the area and ran another assay. And again, it did not fall in that area. So the bottom line is if we want to proceed in getting this genetic study done, finding the genes and getting a, hopefully a test for it, um, we need to do a whole horse genome. And that means looking at all of the genes in the horse, wow. which A is expensive. Yeah. Uh, we don't, they don't need, they didn't need that many samples. She said, well, I think 20 or 30 or something, I think, I forget. Um, but ideally they have to be, um, ideally it would be nice to get them from families, from mares, mares, you know, stallions and their foals. And I put that out there on the Facebook page. Um, I'm going to go up and stop share here. And, uh, got got people interested but understandably some would say hey i've got that i've got a you know i breed i've got a mare i've got a stallion i've got two or three foals i can't afford four x-rays for that many horses i totally understand it uh my answer to that or our answer suggestion is if one of those horses has symptoms that fall into possible ecdm at least get x-rays of that one horse to start uh, the other thing is I'm trying, and Wendy, you're probably good, would be a great 
person to talk to about this is is finding some source of funding to pay to reimburse for x-rays well that's i mean this is the kind of thing where exactly that is um finding some research money to support this study because this is critical to the industry it um, is and so maybe we just need to have a chat about how to how to think of brainstorm on that yeah 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 so, um, and as far as the, the actual pain for the genetic study, Edelon has sort of said, told us not to worry about it right now. They have their ways. <laughs> <laughs> they're finding funding money. They're, they're finding things because they really want to see this happen too. They really want to figure it out. Well, it, I mean, it's imperative to the industry if we want horses that uh, are sound and safe. Um, and the safety factor of a horse that has this problem to the rider is absolutely. absolutely yeah venting on a horse that has a malformation and jump you know running down at a big jump um so you know i think it's uh it behooves us as an industry to figure this out and if they have solved it in the cattle industry why can't we um well it, it comes down to money right you know? and i will say i will put it out there that like i say uh this topic is now out there in the world, there's lots of talk. There's lots of, um, there's essentially two camps. There's the believers and the non-believers. And that involves not only veterinarians and owners, but um, research scientists, uh, some top name people. And, and they're, they're warranted in their questioning of, is this really uh, significant? And so we have this conversation now, this dialect going on now is actually a series of webinars ongoing at the moment, uh, every Wednesday into September, which is about the cervical vertebra and ECBM has been a hot topic, a hot topic um, with the, in that, that webinar. And they don't, they don't all agree they, by any means. No, they don't. Um, but the, the point is very valid. And so this is a data point we're interested in that, you know, of course we see horses that come to us because they have pain and behavioral issues and and that's why they come to us but how many horses out there are functioning perfectly fine and of course there's a realm of what we consider perfectly fine they're doing their job right and, and they have it and so we're interested in that as well like let's see some horses that are out there show jumping or eventing or doing uh dressage and seem to be doing it okay that have ecvm in in one of its variations yeah, a lot of questions, a lot of data. The genetic component is the key here because if, if there are stallions that are transferring this to mares and then it perpetuates the problem. So, um, you know, the first step always is awareness and bringing this information to people. And that's mm -hmm. what I think hopefully this webinar will help do is let people know that, that this may be a potential. You know, and I can think back on horses that one in particular and we could not figure out what was wrong with that horse. And ultimately he was put down, but we didn't ever look, right? And so it's, um, for me, that that horse keeps coming up every time I hear about this in my mind. Yeah. Well, and interestingly enough, what we were saying yesterday to Sharon is that one of the horses we were gonna talk about today that we've recently recovered, and then we decided we had too much to say about this. <laughs> uh, so next webinar that we figured that maybe we knew before we put him down that he didn't have ECVM, but he sort of had all of the signs and symptoms. And so we're like, what will we find? And 
we did find something really big and, and, and it um, wasn't in the neck <laughs> and it wasn't in the neck, but it wasn't, it wasn't the spine. So, and we're finding more and more of them like that too. Unfortunately. Yeah. 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 So it isn't just the neck. There are abnormalities happening throughout the spine that are largely not talked about and are genetic. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I, I will say for those people who are worried about um, getting a horse with this or whatever, we, since it, it does run high in thoroughbreds and warm bloods, if you're going to purchase a horse off the track or whatever, get a pre-purchase, which you should anyways. But the very first thing you do in that pre-purchase is have C6 and C7 or C6, just x-ray and determine if you can, what the status is, what the morphology, if it is definitely ECVM or very close to it, you don't need to go any farther. You just saved money on the rest of the pre-purchase and your future diagnostics to find out what's wrong. If it looks normal, go ahead. You know, so um, also there's, it's out there now for the last couple of years, Sharon way back in her early work was suspicious of certain bloodlines because she was seeing them over and over with the malformation. One of them that pops up that is out there anyways so i can say it is northern dancer in the in the thoroughbred line really oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> when, when <he's> <laughs> <laughs> oh boy Pam, I, 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 I well so i was no. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> lucky when northern dancer as a sire was really really hot and i watched one of his foals for, sell for 10 million dollars and it was impotent and couldn't run out of a paper bag <laughs> That was $10 million, you know, and the next year it was a $13 million Northern Dancer. So, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Well, but it's the line. It's not so much like Northern Dancer. But the important thing is, is it's, this is manifested through inbreeding, through a yeah. high level, level of inbreeding. So if you've got, your horse has got Northern Dancer once or, once or twice on the sire line, don't worry about it quite so much, you know, um, pay attention if your and horse is having problems. Well, the beauty of the thoroughbred it says you can go back and look. You can look at the genetic lines and figure out yep. if he shows up, right? So right. there is value to knowing that. Um, if I have one more, if I can get my PowerPoint one more time, I've got this group. Oh, great. Have... And Joyce, if you could just pop your question, you've raised your hand, just pop it in the, in the chat there. It'd be a lot easier for me. We have anybody hanging on still? <laughs> uh, yeah, we got 12 people still with us. All right. Now, how did I do this before? You, yeah, you mm -hmm. did a great job. Mm -hmm. You're back. Oh, <laughs> this is our favorite. It's called, it's called the casual skeleton. Awesome. Okay. This is a fantastic chart. It's a, it's the si it's the size of a poster. You can buy this through uh, uh, prominent sire lines, uh, com. And it looks totally crazy and confusing. It's, these are thoroughbred lines. Yep. And very, very central part are the original founding Arabians, et cetera. And then it spans out into the lines. So I've enlarged it. It's so cool to look at this it really chart. Is. I've literally just poured over this thing. So we are looking like from, from the lower half of it, essentially. Right. What I have, so up here, in the very center are, like I say, the Darley uh, Arabian and the, the founding horses. And these red arrows point to a horse named Eclipse. Right. Okay. So Eclipse 
all of Eclipse's descendants stem all the way around here, okay? This little cone here that, that ends up going up, these horses are not descendant from Eclipse. Eclipse's skeleton in the museum has the malformation in the neck bones. So the fact that he has it means, should mean, or might mean that he's double recessive genetically. So he carries both of the mutated genes in his, in his chromosomes. If we go 12 more generations to here, this horse is called uh, Polymelis. And the orange lines, these are all of his descendants and his skeleton also has the malformation. So, so people start freaking out because they go, oh my God. Everybody knows are all of those horses. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, these are all named. Storm, Stormcat, all these horses. And yes, there's, there's, ch there's chance obviously that many of them carry the genes, probably some of them. Now these were, this is not all thoroughbreds that were bred obviously, but these are the top prominent horses. Right. But the potential for a horse with Northern Dancer on both the mare and sire side uh, several times mating and, and also having Bold Ruler or Mr. Yeah. Prospect or Stormcat or whatever can accumulate possibly those bad genes. It's, it's, it's a crapshoot. But anyways, I think this is the biggest chart. <laughs> there is a possibility, just to talk about genetics for a second, that there are horses in those lines that are completely clear. No recessive, no nothing. Yep, right? absolutely. And that's the trick of genetics. <laughs> yep, yes. And that's why getting a test would be so valuable, I think, to, right. to everyone, to the industry. So, right. so I think we're done. Are we done? I think we're done. <laughs> are we done? <laughs> I really appreciate what you guys are doing. It's, you know, if it's so important. And sometimes it's so hard to be the one out there, you know, like ringing the bell and saying, there's a problem and we really need to look. But it's in the end, it's so important. It's so important in so many ways to the training, to the cost, to the frustration, to the injuries, you know, yep. that, that this work goes forward. And I think it's so uh, important to, for you to get what you need to do this study because, um, you know, obviously it's your passion and, um, and you recognize it's important. So um, we'll need to, I, I have an idea. I don't know if it'll go anywhere, but let me see what I can do. Um, I won't say anything here on the web. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Wendy. I mean, we, I looked into, into having a, a foundation that uh, deals with soundness issues. Mm -hmm. um, and they do, they, they will raise funds if you write a proposal. And I um, ch chatted with one of the um, head people from that. She told me, what, told me what I needed to do. And all I want to be able to do is have money to reimburse for the x-rays um, and what's involved with taking the x-rays and postage to send the hair. And she understandably wanted me to write a proposal that involved videos to watch the horses go and correlate the soundness with the possible ECGM and all of this extraneous stuff, which is wonderful, but that's not my focus. Well, yeah. the other thing is, you know, it's KISS. Keep it simple. And so- <laughs> I've been saying that all day. Yeah. Yeah. It's too involved. You can't- well, Someone else can do that. <laughs> and I- 
you know, you did your pilot. And then the next thing is to expand that because you couldn't find the gene and find the gene. And once then you can expand out to documentation of videos and stuff, but getting people to be consistent is not a simple thing. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that, I think stick to your guns, keep it simple. Um, and locating the gene is so critical because um, that's how you're going to find it in other horses that are not showing signs. Yeah, yeah. If it's as simple as that, I have I have my I have my my reservations that it's really complicated because genetics is really complicated. But we'll we'll start simple. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you, ladies, so much. This has once again been a fantastic webinar. Um, it, uh, we're going to book you back, obviously, because we have way more to talk about and those new horses that you've. Have oh, yeah. One of them's mine. <laughs> oh, okay. I look forward to those stories. And, and thank you so much for your generosity and sharing your knowledge and information in your bone room with everyone. I so appreciate what you well, guys. Thank do. you for bringing it all to the public. Yeah, it's absolutely. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. Indeed. Thanks to everybody for visiting and uh, spread the word. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Bring awareness. Bye bye. <laughs>